Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind you that if you want to learn more about the topics covered in this podcast, we have two event series. The first is called Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The other conference is called the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at theaicon.com. In this episode of the O'Reilly Data Show, my guest is Grace Wang, data science lead at Pinterest. With its combination of a large social graph, enthusiastic users, multimedia data, I've long regarded Pinterest as a fascinating lab for data science. Grace describes the challenge of building a sustainable content ecosystem and the lessons learned from the front lines of machine learning product launches. We also discussed recommenders the emergence of deep learning as a technique used within Pinterest, and the role of data science within the company. I hope you enjoyed the episode. All right, so Grace just finished giving a great keynote uh, here at Strata London. So we're recording this on the day of her keynote. And so first off, before we jump into what you do at Pinterest, can you tell us a little bit about your journey from uh, computational biology to an industrial data scientist? Yeah, industrial data scientist, that's right. Um, right, so I was previously trained as a computational biologist. So I did a PhD in uh, computational genomics um, where I applied machine learning algorithms, developed machine learning algorithms in the fields of computational genomics. Um, initially, I was very set on the academic path. I did an internship um, out in Foster City with uh, a leading gene sequencing company at the time. And when I was doing that internship, I got to meet a lot of people in tech. And I think it was a very eye-opening experience in many ways. I think that I was really impressed with the, the pace at which technology was moving at the time. I was very impressed with the caliber of people that were doing the kind of work that they were doing. I think that in, in academia, there's this kind of like prevailing myth that, you know, academia has like the, the, the best minds. And I, I realized that that was not necessarily true. And so I started becoming really interested in the idea of, of being tech and working on products that have uh, very wide-reaching impacts. And to me at the time, the easiest way for me to transition into that role was data science. So data science was starting to emerge as a discipline. There were articles and a lot of hypes around it at the time. And I thought, hey, what I did in academia was basically data science in a different field, and I could um, repackage myself to, um, to, to basically explore this, this opportunity. And so that's what I did. I, I basically jumped straight from academia into data science. So you mentioned that uh, in your academic work, you were already using machine learning. That's right. So how much... Uh, so did you did you have to do a lot of uh, retraining to 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 do to work on problems that uh, industry people are working on? Because for one thing, you, the data in genomics is very different. It right? was very different. Um, that's a very good point. I, I think that it was very interesting and different in a few ways. So the data I was working on uh, in genomics it was very high dimensional with not a lot of data points. And uh, in the industry, it's almost the opposite, right? Like, it's not as high-dimensional. You're talking about, you know, a few hundreds, thousands of dimensions um, with just tons of data. And so the, the challenging industry is often how do you count and how do you count in a very optimal way 
versus in academia, you are developing very fancy algorithms. And the trouble there is that you often do not have enough opportunities to test your idea. Um, and so I, to me, that was the biggest difference. And so uh, I was developing models. Um, but in order to verify the model, at the end of the day, you have to go back to a wet lab and people have to perform experiments on it. And that's a very long iteration, very long cycle compared to in the industry where we can run A-B tests and you get your results. You, you know what happens within a few weeks. So you're one of the lucky people because your PhD was generally uh, in the same uh, areas what uh, data scientists use. That's right. So there's also a, a cohort of science PhDs who go through these kind of 12-week training programs. Right? right. So they might have their PhDs might be in chemistry, physics, or math. And right. Then they have to learn machine learning. So you happen to already know machine learning. Right. And so you were you guys using Python as well in uh, genomics? Um, some people were. Uh, I would say at the time it was even split between Python, R, and MATLAB. Actually, a lot of people were using MATLAB. You know, I think they did a good job uh, <laughs> okay, placing themselves uh, you know, in, on university campuses with pre-licenses. Um, so I did a lot of MATLAB. I did some R in machine learning when I was in graduate school. And I learned Python by myself toward the end because that was when I realized that's where what everyone was using at the time. And so I didn't quite use it for my own research, but I, I started looking into it. I started playing around with it and I taught myself Python toward the end of my grad school. So now let's shift a little bit and talk about your work at Pinterest. So I think many in our audience already know what Pinterest is, but uh, at a high level, uh, describe kind of what makes Pinterest data unique and challenging. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a great question. So Pinterest has a few different kinds of data, and I think that the data itself really is a key differentiator for Pinterest compared to other companies. So if you think about it, we have uh, social network data the same way that you know a lot of social network companies have, right? So, so a user graphs. can right. So that's a graph, right? So a user can follow other users, they can follow other boards. We have human curated data in the sense that we have these content that already exists on the internet, and at least one human being have found that piece of content uh, interesting and worthy enough to bring them into Pinterest. So there's that curation step, and then they might even go through the pain of editing the title, editing the description. So there's a lot of curation that comes into this. And so that's, that in itself is an immense piece of, of curation that you don't really find elsewhere. And then finally, we have a particular type of graph that a lot of other companies don't have. Um, so this is the pin to board graph. So again, this is a different form of human curation in the sense that it's clever filtering is its purest form, right? So people coming to Pinterest, maybe they're bringing a piece of content or maybe they were just on Pinterest browsing through content that other people brought in. They can decide that they want to create a collection around a particular idea. So for example, uh, I'm really into house plans. And so I have a board with all kinds of house plans on it. And so uh, I can browse through Pinterest. And whenever I encounter a house plan that I think is relevant to what I'm looking for, I pin it onto the board. And so these collections itself is very valuable human curation. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's crowdsourcing curation at scale. And people were happily doing it, right? Like we're not even asking them to, to do that for us in exchange for some amount of you know, monetary incentives. They're just happily doing it. So this is actually the type of data that we re rely on the most and that 
powers a lot of the, the machine learning products we have, um, including a lot of the visual-based products. So in San, in, at Strata San Jose, you gave a talk about uh, the content in ecosystem at Pinterest. Right. So how does machine learning and data science uh, help Pinterest content ecosystem? Yeah. You know, in that talk, we explored the idea of sort of like, how do you maintain um, this content corpus that you have in the long term, right? So we have machine learning products where it basically exploits the, the data that I just talked about. But you can imagine that it's if It's complicated corpus too, right? Yeah, it's a very complicated, yeah. it's giant corpus, complicated, has a very rich metadata associated with it. But if, if you build a system where there's a lot of bias in it, over time, you can uh, start showing just a particular corner of that corpus to the world because you think that your user might find that piece of uh, that, that corner of content particularly engaging. And this is an issue when you're basing your algorithms on your existing users, right? So uh, when Pinterest start, first started out, we have a very strong user base around uh, particular user demographics. And so that part of the content corpus becomes very well curated, which makes them really easy for them to rank really high in our machine learning products. And so then we have to start consciously thinking about how to combat that problem, because otherwise, over time, you're just going to build a product that only appeal to that, that segment of users. So this, is this related to what you talked about this morning about uh, designing models? Most people design models only with their current users in mind right. and not necessarily factoring absolutely. future users. Yeah, yeah. So I think this is absolutely related. Um, so on the user uh, from the user perspective, you want to make sure that you're creating a, a corpus that covers enough bases in terms of niche interests, in terms of different languages as people speak, in terms of different cultural backgrounds. And then I think on the content side, we have the same problem where, um, again, fresher, newer content may have trouble competing with older content that's been around for a long time and has really good historical performance. And so, again, sort of like maintaining this healthy ecosystem involves creating mechanisms to jumpstart new content so that, A, we can um, show them enough times initially re to really quickly learn about whether or not they're high quality, whether or not they might be relevant for certain segments of users, and then be able to use that information very efficiently to, to drive our, our um, downstream products. But uh, it sounds like, at least uh, in, in your position at, at uh, Pinterest, we can talk about data science, algorithms, and mount and uh, models, but at the end of the day, it's about data products. Right. So maybe you can kind of summarize your the three pieces of advice you gave this morning yeah. about building data products. That's right. Uh, so the three pieces of advice I gave this morning was actually the opposite of advice, which is what you should avoid when you're building data products or machine learning products. And so, so these are um, three anti-patterns. The first one is do not build a product or do not build a model for users today you have to think about your users tomorrow as well. And the second thing is it's really easy to build a system where rich gets richer. Uh, so there are a lot of techniques uh, out there to, to prevent that from happening. It's often not by design, it's very subtle, and it takes a long time to observe this rich get richer effect for it to build up. And so um, you have so, to be so, very so, vigilant about so it. So those first two seem to hit at the idea that you, know, you, have a, you have data now which has a certain distribution but you don't want to kind of get carried away in thinking that's exactly. reality. Right? Exactly, so, yeah. Well, it's almost like related to this problem in finance, right? Yeah. So, 
uh, past performance is not an indicator of future performance. Exactly. I think that there's so much parallel to economic inequality, to finance. Um, it, you know, it, there, it, a lot of these systems are like seemingly based on merits, but often they're actually not. Um, and so, so a lot of these considerations are um, how do we avoid the pitfalls of falling into just using your existing data. So, by the way, are these anti-patterns based on battle scars of, <laughs> of lessons learned? In- uh, they are. They are. Um, a lot of these we learned the hard way. A lot of these we, we know, right? I mean, on the high level, we did know them. But then it's, you know, when you're building machine learning products, it's really easy to get into the weeds and, and lose sight of the, sort of like the core of the system. Um, and so uh, we did learn a lot of them the hard way. We have a lot of product launches and a lot of launch reviews. And uh, we sit down, we, we talk about the merits of each of them, and we often uh, debate about whether or not it's worth it to, to launch uh, these products. And so the third anti-pattern that I hadn't get to, gone to uh, is um, optimizing often not quite the right thing, right? So you, you can get exactly what you wish for with a machine learning system. It's very good at optimizing toward what you tell it to, to go toward. But that goal may not necessarily correlate with the ultimate goal. And so keeping your ultimate goal in mind and evaluating your products with the ultimate goal instead of your intermediate goal uh, is really important. So is this related to the notion of uh, you, have the, uh, you have the metrics that are statistical or machine learning oriented as opposed to the business metrics. That's right. Um, I think that short-term metrics are easier to optimize toward, but they may or may not correlate with long-term retention, which often is what you ultimately care about. Um, so sort of understanding the tension between these two metrics, when they track well against each other and when they diverge from each, each other, that's, that's pretty important. So this is a question I ask uh, people these days, which is... Uh, how do you make a distinction between the people who who do the prototypes versus the people who build the production uh, version of the prototype of, right. a, of a machine learning? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So, so in other words, you have data scientists over here working in notebooks, and then machine learning engineers over here touching production systems. Yeah, I I would say that's a that's a reasonably accurate portrait. But but it's so the difference is that I think that. Data scientists do not build the prototypes of um, our production machine learning models. So we actually well, the pipe. What about the, the pipeline for for the start the start of the pipeline for acquiring the data, cleaning and blah 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 blah. Right. So I I, I would say that's um, completely owned by our engineering teams. Okay. So we have this distinction between the data science team where we do the surrounding data science work, and then we So have, wait a minute, so did the data scientists only work on perfectly clean data? They don't have to do any uh, We work data with the opposite of that, which is <laughs> <laughs> terribly gnarly data. So then you have to explain uh, to the engineer the data pipeline of having to go from this raw data all the way to the model. Right, so, so I would say we, independently work on it. So, okay. so the engineers own the pipeline okay. end-to-end. Right. Um, so they do generate signals for themselves. Um, in fact, we have a very great uh, system, internal uh, library that we developed with basically DSLs that you can specify to uh, really easily add features. And so this is, this is a very sophisticated engineering system that the machine learning engineers have built um, and have relied on. And so they, they work and iterate along this pipeline. Our role is actually to provide sort of like the, the uh, 
um, recommendations and analysis and insights along each of the way. So, for example... Um, and these are very distinct groups. We are distinct, but we're distinct to the extent that we have a different reporting structure, but we sit together. Okay. Uh, so we're actually very intertwined, right? I, I talk to machine learning engineers you know, multiple times, sometimes dozens of times a day, I mean, all the meetings. Um, and so the data science are, are, the data science team is involved to the extent that, um, we have to figure out, like, what are, what are the, the goals that we're trying to optimize toward, right? Like, what are some metrics that we can actually use in our model that tracks well with long term? Like, what combination of them, what kind of trade offs do we want to use? How do we evaluate machine learning experiments? It turned out these experiments are very different from traditional experiments. Um, so we have to develop a lot of different tools and visualizations to help us understand, especially with, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the algorithms that we use nowadays are very black boxy, right? Like you can't go and look at coefficients. You can't go and look at feature importance. And so if you want to try to make sense of what your model is doing and try to understand how to iterate, um, you have to rely on a lot of additional analysis tools. And so we help prototype those tools, build those tools, and we work with engineers to go back and forth on, on these experiment results. Speaking of black boxes, uh, the ultimate black box is deep learning. So to what extent uh, is deep learning being used at, uh, at Pinterest? Yeah. And uh, so, did, uh, is it starting to displace some of the things that you, you used to use? Right. Um, so deep learning currently are used in two places at Pinterest in production, and it's being tested in a lot of the other places as well. So one of them um, is our visual search. Um, that's sort of like one of the killer features that we have. Um, it is obviously has to depend on some sort of deep learning and embeddings yeah, yeah. to to be able to, you know, do object detection, to be able to do, um, you know, related image search. Um, the other place where it's currently using production is our ranking. So um, if you're coming to our home feed, we have to be able to rank the content that we want to show you based on how likely you are to engage with them. And um, we've actually recently completely switched over to basically neural nets-based models, and they, they perform great. They perform really well. So what about so one of the things I'm hearing from people is they're also uh, evaluating deep learning for recommenders. Right. Is this something that uh, you folks are also playing with? Yeah, we're, that's something that we're actively uh, considering and playing with. Um, and I, I would say not necessarily deep learning as a whole, but rather the embeddings, right? So, I mean, I think the embeddings is a very important part of deep learning that a lot of people will extract out. Um, and so you don't necessarily have to go through that last layer where you're actually trying to predict something. If you take one step back, just use uh, take support, the support vector machine or random forest at the end. Right, you can, uh, you can use anything at yeah, the end, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, but, but the embeddings is a way to represent your features in a very abstract way that sort of like traditional machine learning techniques uh, had to rely heavily on like, you know, like human powered feature engineering and, and that sort of removes that way. And so we're actively uh, playing with the idea. Um, we have a lot of experiments going on right now uh, using embedding-based um, recommend, recommendation uh, systems. So to close, um, I'm sure you, you folks are also hiring and recruiting. Yes. Right? So... So first of all, what kind of people, uh, what kind of uh, skill sets uh, uh, would work best at Pinterest? And uh, 
how do people learn on the job at Pinterest? Do you guys have a good culture of, of training people on the job for you know, any kind of skill gaps that they may have? Yeah, you know, I, I would say um, at Pinterest, we look for sort of the combinations of very smart, highly competent people who are very collaborative and product-minded. And I want to stress collaborative and product-minded because at the end of the day, the key differentiator for Pinterest is, is the product itself and the willingness for people to work together to overcome technical challenges to work on that. And so um, we look for, you know, folks in obviously research background to, to work on a lot of the machine learning problems. Um, most of the folks on these machine learning teams um, have some research academic backgrounds in the past. Um, some of them are still actively engaged in research. Um, but they're all sort of, you know, extremely. There's a lot of soft skills, it sounds but like. But there is a lot of soft skills. There's a lot of communications. There's a lot of, um, Emp product empathy. discussions. Yeah. And yeah. And, and I would say, you know, on the data science side, it, it's very similar in the, in the sense that, you know, we look for people with exposure and basic training in machine learning to the extent that you can engage in productive conversations with machine learning engineers. You have to have the confidence to be able to stand up to them and say, no, you're wrong. Um, but we also look for people who have the right communication empathy toward software engineering because it's, it's actually really difficult to build and maintain a production system. And I think that's something that, you know, more junior data scientists often have trouble relate to if they've never had software engineering experiences in the past. And so we look for that quality in people so that they can work uh, very effectively with, with the engineers on the team. Well, I, for one, are, uh, I'm very impressed with the uh, data team at uh, Pinterest, and uh, hopefully I can get them to speak at uh, many of the conferences I run, which includes the Strata Data Conference at uh, strataconf.com and the O'Reilly AI Conference at o'reillyaicon.com. Thank you, Grace. Thank you, Ben. All right, that's a wrap. You can follow Grace Wang on Twitter at Pinterest. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.